Now, you all have your little hazelnut, right? Got your hazelnut handy? You need one? Oh, I got some extras. Great. I didn't realize how many you'd get in a scoop. So I just bought like a pound of these things. I'm going to ask if you turn in the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've been doing a series on the end of life issues, where the end is the beginning. And I would like to start by reading a small section from 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be making references to a number of different places in the scriptures. I will announce the reference and then I will read it. I don't expect everyone to be flashing through the Bible trying to keep up with the references. Um, Anyone who wants to get the references from me at the end, I'll be glad to share them with you. Uh, If you want to write down the references, you can look them up yourselves later on this afternoon. But we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 for the bulk of the message. But I'd like to um, begin reading with verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we come before you this morning in the name of your risen Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that Christ is risen from the dead. And that we have a hope in him who said, I am the resurrection and the life. And we pray, O God, that this morning your spirit might accomplish your purposes in this time that we have set aside. As we open your word, as we meditate in it, may your spirit pour into us that which we need desperately. That living water that transforms us from the inside out. That the false ideas of our age would be swept away in that holy flood. And that your spirit might renew our minds and transform us from the inside out. We pray for those who here who are unaware of the promises and the plan that you have put into place from before the dawn of time. And we pray that, that you would illuminate, even as we were singing and praying as we were saying, Spirit, illuminate us. Illuminate us, shine in our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, Lord. This is what we pray. And we do this, Lord, not just that we might become better selves here, but that we might bring glory to you, that we might honor you, that we might seek you, that we might serve you, that we might know you better and bring honor to your name. 
for this is why we were created. And we pray that we would live out our destiny as children, sons and daughters of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In March of 2015, an article was published in Newsweek titled, Silicon Valley is Trying to Make Humans Immortal. The article reads like this. Peter Thiel, the billionaire co-founder of PayPal, plans to live to be about 120. Compared with some other tech billionaires, he doesn't seem particularly ambitious. Dmitry Itzkov, the godfather of the Russian internet, says his goal is to live to 10,000. Larry Ellison, the co-founder of Oracle, finds the notion of accepting mortality incomprehensible. And Sergey Brin, co-founder of Google, hopes to someday cure death. The article continues by observing, perhaps the fix is to replace bodies, these unreliable vessels plagued with problems altogether. That's the goal of the most ambitious billionaire-backed immortality investment of them all. It's Scoff's 2045 initiative. Founded in early 2011, the initiative has already collected an impressive set of experts and specialties, ranging from robotics and neural interfaces to artificial organ creation. Their goal? Replace our current meaty cases with robotic or holographic avatars. And you guessed it, by 2045. Cybernetics, transhumanism, the quest for immortality. What do they have in common? On some level, they despise this mortal flesh. They see the body as the enemy of the soul. They perceive this body as a meaty mess, disposable, replaceable, dispensable. What a contrast to what God says in his word. And then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Our bodies were created by God. And that while the Bible is clear, God is a spirit, he designed us to have both spirit, soul, and body. So the question to start this morning is, what is your theology of your body? What do you think about the body that you are in right now? You see, throughout much of Western history, we've been plagued by a persistent Gnosticism and a Neoplatonism, a divide between the spiritual and the physical. It's influenced the church throughout history, and it's influenced Western thought about the nature of our bodies, the downgrading of the body, where the Bible exhorts us to see our bodies in their proper place. You see, some people worship their bodies and hope to hold off the ravages of sin through any means necessary. Their bodies are like their God. Some despise their bodies and attempt to mutilate, carve, restructure, redesign their bodies. And some reject their bodies altogether and kill themselves. 
The resurrection of Christ informs us of what God thinks of this mortal flesh. Am I just a bag of meat? Or is something else going on inside of me? Is the divine signature limited only to my spirit? Or did God intend my body and your body to be more than just temporary housing? What is your body? Is it disposable? Is it dispensable? Or is it valuable? And what becomes of you and your body after you die? And will your body and you ever meet again? Over the last couple of weeks, we've been exploring these end-of-life issues. And in our first time together, we talked about how there is a conscious you that lasts beyond the grave. That the, end is, that the end is not at the grave. That we don't have an end at death. That as we saw in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that both Lazarus and the rich man persisted after death in a conscious state. And last week we looked at what the Bible says and particularly what Jesus says about that awful place called hell. A place that Jesus was so concerned about that he would spend more time talking about it than heaven. Using the most graphic, uh, provocative language possible to call attention to the danger that we as human beings live under because of our sin and separation from God. And that the very reason for Christ's coming was not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why? Because the world is already living under the condemnation and wrath of God. Because of our rebellion, because of our sin, because of our fierce independence, our shaking our fist at the heavens and saying, we will not have you rule over us. Who are you to tell us? How we should live. And so today we come to the third part in this series. And the subject that is our focus today is that of the bodily resurrection. To examine what the Bible talks about when it speaks of a resurrection. And there's all kinds of things that we have to kind of touch on this morning that deal with some of the issues related to this. For example, is resurrection the same thing as recreation? Are we going to be recreated or is there a resurrection? In other words, if I'm recreated, is there a complete disconnect from the old me? And there's something completely unrelated to me that God's going to do, which, by the way, is the position of Jehovah's Witnesses. Or is there some continuity that takes place between you and me who are sitting here and standing here right now and the resurrection that we anticipate in Christ? And what is the nature of that body? What does it look like? What, what, What are the attributes of it? Will we recognize one another? Do we, will we know one another in that day? And so we need to kind of get some basic facts down first. We need to look at certain things that are foundational to our understanding of resurrection. And so since we're in 1 Corinthians 15, would you go to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4? 
The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's addressing a lot of different issues in that church. Issues about divisions in the church. People are fighting with one another in this church. They're arguing with one another. They're pledging allegiance to different leaders, and it's causing schism in the church. He's dealing with immorality in the church and lawsuits in the church. And we come to chapter 15, and the issue is that there were some people in the church who were preaching that there's no such thing as a resurrection. That there's no such thing as a resurrection. And of course, part of that is because in ancient Greek philosophy, the body was something really disposable. It was something that was not essential to our existence. That the body was carnal, it was mortal, it was weak, it was, it was just something to be either despised or used and then thrown away. That the Gnosticism of the first and second centuries taught that what really mattered was the spirit. What really mattered was the spiritual being. And so as long as the spiritual being was holy and pure, you could do whatever you want with the body. And of course we see that Gnosticism pursuing today. We see it with people struggling with their identities. We see people struggling with gender dysphoria. We see people struggling with sexual identity and with with who they are. As though there's some total disconnect between their body and their soul. And all that really matters is their soul. Their body can be dispensed with. In fact, one of the most scandalous verses... In the New Testament, as far as the Greeks were concerned in that day, was that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's not the scandal. Greek philosophy say, yes, the logos, the prime order and mover, the order behind everything, yes, that's God. They would understand that. They would accept that. They'd say, yes, we get that. We get that. They would use the word logos, word, to describe the mind, the will, the power, the force behind everything that exists. And then they would hear John's statement, and the word became human and dwelt among us. And that was scandal. The word became flesh. Disgusting. The baby born in a manger. Disgusting. God in man. Repulsive. Because the body was looked at as a necessary evil. But John says in his gospel that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you see, we come to chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul is going to rehearse the gospel with them. He's going to remind them of what the gospel is. He's going to remind them that the gospel is what they've heard. And the gospel is what has been preached. And the gospel is what makes them stand. In other words, gives them standing before God. And it's also the gospel by which they are saved. And see, the word gospel means good news. What is the good news of God? What is the good news that was preached to the Corinthians? What is the good news that has been preached for the last 2,000 years 
and that has continued to be preached in Africa and in Asia and in Europe and Latin America and Australia, and that there are those, there are many who follow it, and there are a few that follow it. It makes no difference because it's the same good news. And what is it? I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And when Paul says according to the scriptures, what he's saying there is that the death of the Messiah, the Christ, had been foretold centuries before the events. That in Isaiah and in Daniel, the very prophets foretold the coming of the anointed one and the purpose of the anointed one would be that he'd be cut off, as Daniel said, for the sins of the people. That as Isaiah said, 700 years before the event, that the Messiah would be taken by cruel hands and that he'd be pierced and that he'd bear our sins and carry our sorrows and that he would be accounted with the wicked in his death and with the rich in his burial and that this one would Take the substitutionary place as the servant of Jehovah. That Christ died for our sins. Now, stop and think about that for a second. The Bible makes it plain that sin separates us from God. In the Old Testament, it was very clear. From the very beginning, in the very first book of the Bible, God says, the moment you disobey me, you will surely die. And of course, we found out, as we looked at it last week, that that death was not just a physical death, but a spiritual separation from God. Adam and Eve were separated from God. They felt shame. They felt guilt. And when they heard God speaking, as it were, in the cool of the evening, they ran and hid themselves out of shame. That's what sin does when our relationship with God. When you feel uh, like you're guilty, you run from the person you think you've offended. It's hard to face them. Whether it's your parents, your spouse, your children, your neighbor, your friend. When you think there's something between you and that person, what guilt does is it doesn't bring you together. It drives you apart. And that guilt drove Adam and Eve from God. And God went looking for them. And beginning in the garden, when God slew animals to cover their nakedness, from that point forward, throughout the entire Old Testament, we see a common mantra over and over again. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. The prophet would thunder, the soul that sins shall surely die. And so here we are, we come to the New Testament, and we read these words, Christ died for our sins. Now isn't that strange? Isn't it strange that Jesus had to be human first? Isn't it strange that the Son of God had to become human? I mean, if sin was just a spiritual thing, why would he have to be human? Why couldn't some cosmic event take place? I mean, Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he did that as a man. If, if redemption was just a spiritual thing, why would he have to be a man? If redemption was limited only to 
the soulish part of us, why would he be a man? If separation was only in a spiritual sense, why the incarnation? Why Christmas? Why the whole birth story, the baby in Bethlehem, the whole sheep and cattle and, you know, shepherds and wise men? Why why bother with all of it? If there wasn't something downright tangible, physical, that God was doing in redemption. Christ died for our sins. See, sin separates us from God, and we're human beings. God made us spirit, soul, and body. We've got a body. We die because of sin. Death is the result of sin. It's not because of cancer, or it's not because of uh, you know, cell, cellular breakdown. I mean, those might be secondary causes, but the primary cause is that every man, woman, and child is, who's alive today, before their conversion, is separated from God spiritually, the source of life. The consequence of death permeates. God became a man to do what God cannot do in his spiritual sense, because God cannot die. But the man who hung on the cross and died for you and me was God. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. Verse 4. He was buried. Now, what's the significance of that? And that is because there's no doubt about Jesus' real death. He was really dead. He wasn't feigning death. He wasn't pretending to be dead. He was really dead. He was without sensory perception, flatlined, no EKG. And wasn't like he was, like, like, you know, in the Prince of Bryce, mostly dead? No, he was really, truly dead. And his burial is significant, not just because you don't bury living people. That has happened sometimes. That's why in, in, in the colonial period, you'd go through cemeteries and there would be bells and with cords into the ground because those cords would go to the coffin and if you were uh, buried alive by mistake, you could ring the bell really hard and hopefully someone would hear you. No, that's not what was going on here. He was not just buried because he was dead. He was in the grave three days. And you see the significance of that is because there'd be no misunderstanding. Besides which, uh, Jesus had been so brutalized before his death when medical people have looked at the description of his execution they marvel that he survived as long as he did on the cross. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day. Now, I need you to kind of grasp this. For the Christians here, 
We take this for granted so often that it's like familiarity breeds contempt. But we have to understand that, that uh, 2,000 years ago, about 2,000 years ago, there was a dead man in a grave. And then three days later, he was not in the grave. Now, you can imagine, right, someone dying and being put in a morgue. And they're sealed in a morgue. And for three days, they're in the morgue. And then all of a sudden, they're not in that slab anymore. And, and what we have to understand is that this is the singularity of human history. There have been two in all of time. The first singularity was when God said, let there be light. And God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. A singularity means there's been nothing like it ever since. And there'll never be anything like it again. And in that moment, God created out of nothing everything we see. From the furthest galaxies that we can discover to the most tiniest atom and elemental force in the universe, God created it out of nothing in an instant. The second singularity is when Jesus walked out of that grave alive. And that is why he's referred to as the first fruits. Because from his event, just like every existence that comes from that initial creation flowing through history has flowed from that singularity, his singular resurrection from the dead becomes the starting point of a whole new creation. And just so that we understand, he appeared. He appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter. He appeared to 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 at one time. And then he appeared to James, and then he appeared to all the apostles. And then Paul says, last of all, in verse 8, he appeared to me. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, one of, is documented in history like no other ancient event. It's only a refusal to accept the evidence that prevents someone from seeing it for what it is. And you see, Christ's resurrection is the beginning. I love the way uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, when Aslan has sacrificed himself on the behalf of Edmund and has laid himself upon the stone table as a sacrificial uh, offering, and the witch slays him, and it seems as though evil has triumphed, triumphed, that there is a moment of resurrection when Aslan comes back to life. Spoiler alert. And... and and the girls are amazed, and they're just shocked, and, and they say, Aslan, Aslan, is this another kind of magic? And he says, yes, it's a deeper magic. The witch only knew of the magic from the dawn of time, but this is a magic from before the dawn of time, that when one offers oneself for a traitor who is completely innocent and lays himself on that altar of sacrifice, death itself begins to work backwards. And you see in that moment, Christ's resurrection, his first fruits, he could say to his disciples, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And because I live, you shall live also. That is why he could say to Martha, beside the grave of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, 
will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And you see, that's the eternal question in the moment right now. You see, because in the garden, the first sin was not grabbing the fruit off the tree. The first sin wasn't taking the bite from the fruit. The first sin was the moment that Eve stopped believing God and started believing Satan. If you'll allow me to paraphrase, God basically said to Adam and Eve, trust me. And they didn't. And the gospel message is the same message that Adam and Eve heard in the garden. It's the same message that was given to Abraham. It was the same message given to Moses, to David, to all the prophets. That down through the history, people have confused it. They thought that God said, oh no, we got to do this. We got to do this. God wants us to do all these things. Yes, there are things God wants us to do, but not because we think that that'll make God happy. What makes God pleased is we trust him. And so when it comes to the great question of your salvation, when it comes to that question about whether you will share in the resurrection, in the unmaking of death, that Christ began almost 2,000 years ago, the question is, are, isn't, is not, are you a good person? The question isn't, are you trying hard? The question is, are you, isn't, are you obeying the commandments? That's not the question. The question is, are you trusting him? Well, what, do I, what do I mean? Well, he said, look, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. It's like Jesus is saying, do you trust me? He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's saying, do you trust me? Do you believe this? Are you willing to stake your future on it? Are you willing to come to me and say, yes, Lord, I believe you're the way, the truth, life. You're the son of God. You are who you say you are, and I've got no hope but you. The Gospel of John says this at the very, near the very end of the book, that, that Jesus did lots of signs and many other wonders, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, the, the resurrection of Christ is the first fruits of all resurrection to come. Those who have life in him, it starts now and never ends. So there's no break in me. There's no new me in the sense that I'm not going to be me in eternity. I'm just going to be a glorified me. Amen. Amen. Thank God. What happens? Paul says in Philippians 3, now just listen to these verses. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, now watch this, who will transform the body of our humble estate. 
into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So what does Paul say? We're waiting for the Savior to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to transform this body. He's going to take this body and transform it. John, the, the Apostle John, writes this in John chapter 3, verse 2. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. That is a present reality. If you trust Christ as your Savior, at this very moment, if you believe in his Son, you become a child of God. It's not something that may happen. It's not something that shall happen. It is something that happens in this moment. We sang this moment, grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. And in that song we sang, will this moment his grace receive? Will you this moment his grace receive? You see, salvation is not a process. Although coming to faith might be a process. It might be a hard process. It might be a long process. God might wrestle with you for weeks or months or years. But the moment you trust Christ as your Savior is the moment you become a child of God. Now we are children of God and it has not appeared yet What we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, it says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. You see, the Bible gives us a, a kind of a, 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 a forecast or a prediction of how it's going to unfold. And that is that in the future, Christ is going to return. And Paul says in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that the dead in Christ shall rise first. So in other words, everyone who's ever believed in Jesus, everyone who's ever trusted in Christ, at the moment of Christ's return, his rapture for the church, the dead in Christ will rise first. They will be resurrected. Now, it's not recreated. Now, listen, I know people get uptight about cremation and they argue about whether Christians should be cremated or not. But listen, after about 500 years, it really doesn't matter. It's a mute point. I mean, we're all dust, right? (laughs) From dust we came to dust we returned. So the arguments about recreation, I mean, sorry, cremation don't really really matter because, believe me, the God who spoke the universe into existence can can gather the atoms that were part of this body. There's, There's no challenge there for him. Doesn't matter if I was buried at sea and the fishies had a feast. Doesn't matter whether I was I was burned in a horrific fire. Doesn't matter whether I was cremated or embalmed to look like my best self. Oh, he hasn't looked this good in 30 years, you know? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter because the God who created everything in an instant and said, let there be, he can do this. This is no problem for him. So the dead in Christ shall rise first, but then we who are alive and remain, Paul says, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Whoa, wait a second, we're going airborne. How is that possible? Well, you see, we couldn't do it unless we were changed. Just the way Jesus went airborne and ascended into heaven physically. How is that possible? I mean, it's like, oh man, this is like cosmic. But you know what? I mean, Americans, we're all looking for that, right? We're all crazy. Let me think about like the superhero phenomenon. We all want someone to be like airborne and rescue us. 
Listen, I hate to break the news. He's already been here, done that. There is already the hero we're all craving. There is already a hero we're all crying out for. Save me. He's already come. And he's already risen. And he's already ascended. And he tells us that we get to be like him. Now the apostles, find your little nut there for a second. I can hold that behind me. Paul makes this great analogy about resurrection. What he says here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that, that it's hard for us to comprehend the, what God's going to do. But you need to understand something. He says here in verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be. Take a look at this little hazelnut, right? This is you. This is you now. This is you in the resurrection. You see, that's a hazelnut tree. Can you believe that that comes from this? It's got it all there. But Paul says, look, when we die, we're like this little nut that goes into the ground. And, and in the resurrection of Christ, we reach our full potential. We become what we were supposed to be. We receive our glorified bodies. And it's a glory like the sun and the stars. And as different as the sun and the stars are in their glory from the glory that's here on earth, so is the difference. And this is seed. And that. But it's still the same thing. That's not something altogether different. You see, we will be everything we were meant to be in Christ. And we're going to take a look at some of the other things that Paul says about this resurrected body in the second session. But I want you to carry this around with you this week. And I want you to think about the future God has in store for you if you believe. See, Jesus tells us that there's also another resurrection. He talked about the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. And the thing that is so alarming to me that just as we reach our fullest potential in Christ in the resurrection... Those who know him not, who trust him not, who go into, as some call a lost eternity, they continue to diminish forever and ever. And you know the thing that, you know about that, you know the Zeno's paradox? You know, the Zeno's paradox was that you could never actually reach a certain point because every time you divide it in half, there was still 
more to go. And I think about that when it comes to those who know not Christ. That just as we reach our fullest potential, those without Christ have an infinite loss because they never cease diminishing. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Do you believe this? I have bad news for the guy over Google. You can't cure death. You can't cure it because the problem isn't fundamentally physical. It manifests itself physically. But it's not fundamentally a physical issue. It's one about being cut off from the source of life. But you here this morning have the opportunity to be connected again by grace through faith to that life. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ as our Savior, remember, the best is yet to be. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to meditate this morning on these truths in your word. We thank you that, that for us, death is not the final answer. It's not the end, but the beginning. And that the beginning has already begun for us who are believers. You have given to us eternal life. It's already our possession. It's not something we get when we die. It's something we have through death. And so we thank you for that precious gift, Lord. We pray that your spirit might motivate us to, to, to as Paul wrote, to be faithful, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. For Father, we thank you and we praise you. We ask your blessing as we part. In Jesus' name, amen.